The Brewers Association and Craft Beer Radio present this recording from Saver 2013 in New York City. This recording is from Friday, June 14th. Barrel-Aged Fruit Beers, featuring Kevin Crompton from Epic Brewing Company. Civilization of Beer, and uh, we're a beer education consulting company where we work with distributors, wholesalers, and retailers about uh, how to serve and sell beer properly. But um, it's an honor to be here with all these brewers tonight. And um, although the brewmaster is not here tonight because he missed his flight, his boss is here, which really... <laughs> If you want to get down to the business of, of, you know, what everything, why everything exists and, you know, if you can sell all your beer and not just, you know, brew it and drink all you can and sell the rest, then we're in for a treat. So welcome, Dave, and uh, thank you guys for coming. Just a quick cheers and, and welcome. Uh, we're going to do three different beers tonight and uh, we're going to open it up to questions. Um, but uh, I, I thank you for guys for coming. This is going to be on craftbeerradio.com uh, so uh, when you have a question if you could either uh, I'll repeat the question or I'll, I'll truck the mic over to you um, and uh, thanking the supporters as well the, the, the breweries and also of course the distributors Manhattan Beer and, and uh, others so uh, without further ado what we'll do is we're going to hand it over to this uh, wonderful brewery owner, and, and if you could, Dave, just kind of start us out with, hey, you know, what are you guys doing out there anyway, you know? Sure, thanks, Sam. Um, what are we doing in Utah, right? The most uh, regulated state in the union in terms of alcohol consumption and laws. Um, I moved to Utah in 92, started an aquaculture company there. I came from California, grew up on craft beer, Moved to Utah and basically stopped drinking beer, which was a crime, I admit. But state stores regulated everything. Anyway, 2008, I uh, had sold that previous business I was engaged in and started thinking about beer again. Wanted to do a craft brew brewery, and the laws changed in the state of Utah and allowed uh, breweries to do full-strength beer and sell it outside the state's monopoly of state-controlled liquor stores. So as a business person, that presented an opportunity. So if you built a brewery and uh, you were allowed to sell the beer direct to the public, so we didn't think we'd get a lot of people. We're this little brewery, start this thing up, start brewing beer in March 2010, and boom, there was a lot of thirsty people in Utah looking for full-strength beer. Um, today, I think we're the fi we ranked the, the 50th largest microbrewery in, in the U.S. Uh, we're just... Uh, going to start making wort. If you know what that is, that's the precursor to beer. We're making wort in Denver next week in a second brewery, and uh, it's really exciting times for us. And the concept of the brewery was to make many different styles of beer using many different ingredients. So we don't have a giant silo. We have many different base malts. We're not tied to one base malt. We handle about eight up to 11 strains of yeast in the brewery at a time, and we package every beer we make in 22-ounce bottles. That happens to be a law. If you go to Utah to ski, which is an awesome place to ski, don't get the draft beer because that's 4% unless you really want beer that's really close to water. So ask for a bottle full of strength beers. Um, 
what else can I tell you? So we had to make many different styles well to hit our market, and I think we did. And that's the whole essence of the brewery. We, we do a lot of creative beers. We produce year-round about 25 different beers and another 10 or 11 seasonal beers. And today we're going to try some very interesting beers that uh, are produced uh, from a base beer that we make and aged in wood and treated with different fruits and stuff. So part of brewing, as many of you might know, is, is empirical and experimental. And it's good to have a place to come from when you're coming up with these things. And if you talk to a person who makes music, for instance, and sells lots of music, they will always gladly state their influences. And they'll always talk to you about, well, you know, I, I, I like this person and that person. They never say, I just stole something from uh, this other band. <laughs> but what happens is there's creativity involved once you can base enjoyment off of it. And so the idea of using one base beer for many different incarnations of that beer is a very creative process. But at the same time, it's easier to follow for the listener or for the drinker because you have something to work from and uh, familiarity is something that we crave and and something that um, I, I, I'm sure we're going to get from these different beers because, well, you started with the same stuff and then you messed around. Yep, absolutely. Right? Uh, so the creative process is here in, in, a, in a really... Uh, friendly and hopefully approachable way. So um, in terms of, let's talk about a little of the tech side of, of what we've got in front of us and talk about, you know, what, was, what went into it and then how we can perceive it a little bit experientially. So what is the base beer of this? So this base beer is a, a Belgian golden strong ale. It's called Brainless Belgium in our portfolio. And it's made with um, primarily German Pilsner malt some candied sugar, and um, a little bit of European-style hops, very low hopping rate. Um, it weighs in around 8.3 to almost 9%. We don't always, we don't try to hit exact ABV every time, so... They're just happy in Utah for that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we really... Eight, what? <laughs> yeah, eight. <laughs> so... Um, the beer, that beer is really uh, about the Belgian yeast, and uh, so it has a lot of phenolics, um, some bubblegum esters, and it's a pretty, it's, I think it's actually, the base beer is actually more sweet than the first beer we'll have here because of the way that peaches interact with um, the base beer. But that's about the base beer, Belgian so, golden ale. So strong, or, and we can say strong yeah. Belgian golden, in, in the beer categorization, you know, world of things. It's a pretty popular thing. You've got your Duval and your Delirium Tremens and the Lucifers of the world and the Fin du Monde. And they're all very light and dry with very low residual sugar. Uh, but still, they have huge effervescence. And they're the Belgian sort of version of a, a showcase of what you can do with a hell of a lot of Pilsner malt and then some other things added in. So, Reinheitsgebot is bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I'm not supposed to be talking. I'm just supposed to be hosting, but there's nobody sitting here. So, <laughs> so you know, to, to base, base a, a showcase of really, if you look at the, the triple or the, the strong golden style, you're talking about this very clean base to build on a lot of things that you can do. Um, whether it's Duval with their little apple sort of citrus perfume thing, or whether it's, hey, let's see what this will do with peaches. Um, there's a beer cocktail that we came up with a few years ago called the Evil Peach, which was Duval and you know Lindemann's Pesh mixed together. Nice. And it's sort of like a beer Bellini, you know, but you have these very nice dry champagne-y and, 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 and super dry things that... Actually, peaches lend themselves too because they're one of the more uh, less acidic and more sweet fruits that you that you can challenge yourself with. So, um, you know, when when you're choosing the fruits for these beers, um, how do you treat them? How do you expect them to work out in the beer? And then, you know, what happens if it goes awful? Yeah. So, that's the first thing we want to make sure is that it doesn't go awful. And to make this beer is pretty challenging. I mean. The initial fermentation of the base beer is in stainless. Then we, we, we use a peach puree, actually, an aseptic puree. It's 100% natural, no preservatives, um, but it's aseptic. And the puree, you know, alleviates the risk of using whole fruit and maybe having wild yeast strains. So we actually fill, the, we fill wood Chardonnay, previously used Chardonnay barrels, with the base beer and this peach puree. And we use a a special um, sanitary pump to pump that puree. It's really thick. Pump it into each barrel by hand and um, pitch a little bit of champagne yeast in there to finish off the fermentation in the barrel. So it's re-fermented on the fruit, and it's in the barrel for three to four months, I would say, and each barrel is then tasted and then blended but the fruit selection is pretty simple. We found a good supplier. They have this, this puree available to us. Blending different beers. We were just with uh, David from Firestone Walker. Right. And um, the thing is, a lot of people, I think their, their impression of brewing is make the same thing every time, exactly the same. But a lot of very large breweries and a lot of the breweries that have been, you know, preceding, you know, the consolidation of the market, blending is a natural thing. You do it almost with every brew. There's almost no thing that hasn't been blended at some point. And so what you guys are doing, I feel, is like taking, you know, these, these things that you, you've given up control on and then saying, hey, you know, this is what I think will sell. Right, and that's something that's been going on empirically in the industry for a long time. And uh, do you think that the U.S. beer market is ready to say, "Hey, you know, these guys are homogenizing"? I think we we do very little blending. We release number every beer we make, and so we're blending barrels together. Well, it's two or three tasting. barrels. These or, are really small. So right. Yeah. Yeah. But but does the idea of homogenization come into play for us or well for anyone that blends anything? Well, I because think you can blend if for you a have couple two of very different things and you put them together. Right, you're making them, you're, you're creating this special place that 
only you could have done. And, 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 and that's I an interesting part of, of working with these barrels because you get what you get when you get a barrel, Absolutely. right? And so blending becomes this necessity. Right, a necessity. And, well, the tasting is also yeah. well, like looking for Brett or wild sure. strains and yeah, alleviating and, that from the, the mix. If know? there's not someone there doing it that really knows what they're dealing with, you're you're headed for disaster. Absolutely. Right? And so it's a, it's a it's a wonderfully dangerous place to be yep. as a as a brewery and and uh it's so refreshing. You know, hops. Yeah. <laughs> well, know. let me tell you a little more about the process. Yes, so please. it's aged, it's tasted by a panel of people, so a bunch of guys sit around and they taste 10 11% beer, you know, 50 50 individual wine barrels, and they're pretty lit by the end of the day. And then they have to, then they have to move those barrels with pressure. We use CO2, so we actually pressurize the wood cask and move it back into a fermenter. That's where we do the blend. But because it's a puree of the peach, the skin is there, and you get that tartness mm. of the skin in this beer, I think, if you think about it, because uh, it that sits on that skin for three, four months, you know, three, four, five months. And then they move it in the fermenter, and then what we do there is we full chill that fermenter for about a week, and all those fruit solids naturally drop into the bottom of the cone, and it's cellared off. So clarify the beer with cold, yeah. and uh, you know, kind of kind of leave the best parts of the peach and take yeah. away the not so good. Yeah, it's beautiful. So it's a really fun and interesting um, process. About food with this beer, especially this one in particular, where would you go? I mean. Would you go uh, towards the beginning of a meal, or is it just like, we have to do dessert with this? You know, I like, I like this beer as an aperitif. Um, I also like it with, surprisingly, really spicy seafood. Um, like a, I had a chef prepare a beer dinner once for our, our brand, and he did a seafood meatloaf with a shirachi sauce and i was like oh this is going to be a disaster and it was wonderful with this beer so light was it, freshness was it was it contrasting what was happening there or was it like hey you know this is you know because i think we associate peach with sweetness uh in our experience so it's like hey you know this is standing up to it i'm still getting the peach and you know pineapple mango salsa or whatever incarnation of salsa you can throw any tropical fruit in there and you know peach night might not be a tropical one but <laughs> it fits the bill yeah we're good yeah it's gorgeous beer thanks uh a question yes i was wondering um was it challenging not to have it be a sweet beer so was it challenging to have it not be a sweet beer david i don't think so because that was exactly what we, we wanted a fruit beer that wasn't sweet. We wanted a dry, almost Venus wine-like beer. So the way we got around that is we said, we'll pitch some champagne yeast on this after the Belgian strain. Because the base beer is pretty sweet, like I said, from the phenolics. So using that champagne yeast in the wood and letting it work for four months, I mean, really dries out the beer. So it was by design. Champagne is dry. You know, those yeasts really do a good job of eating the residual sugar from things. So you, you, you start at a place that can be very sweet and cloying, and you end up, and, and, you know, I'm sure all of you have had champagne and Prosecco. 
there's a there's a big note of that in this beer. It's it comes off as a very dry, a little bit musty, a little bit maybe chalky, um, but it's a champagne like situation that you've got. So, um, you know, it's wonderful that brewers are able to say, you know what, you wine guys, you know, we'll use your yeast for some things, but <laughs> you can, you can do what else you want. You know, we we know about these things and we'll use them when we want to. And I, and that's a beautiful thing. And like, you know, there there should be, and there probably will be very less uh, distance between wine and beer in the, in the near future in, in terms of, you know, overlap of production processes and methodology, and and uh, you know, just just the sparkling beverage uh, that is champagne and that is beer is very recent technology, and people will tell you that when they first started making champagne, the idea was not to get bubbles in there, but to figure out a way to deal with them and, and not explode the bottles. And, and the brewers had more of a chance to repeat the process uh, several times a year and were able to figure it out faster. And now that we can have things that hold pressure, then we have lots of fun. And, uh, you know, the bubbles to me... That's what really delivers. And, and so what about working with barrels, Dave, uh, versus do you, do you naturally, do you, do you re-ferment these in the bottles as well, or do they come out uh, fully carbonated as we see here? No, these are, these are um, forced carbonated. So okay. Because once you push it, it sits in the barrel so long, the beer is basically flat. Totally flat. Yeah, pretty flat. And uh, up until about 200 years ago, Everything was flat. So this is just new things that we're figuring out uh, to deal with the bubbles and the effervescence. But uh, in terms of the deliverance of the experience, the bubbles are everything. And that's why flat beer is awful. Yeah. And, this- <laughs> and, and so um, in terms of carbonation, the, the, the Belgian Strong Golden Style is a pretty high one, usually uh, you know, much higher than your average beer. But what... What do you shoot for in terms of uh, carbonating that beer every time perfectly? I forget the exact measurement, but it's pretty high. It's pretty it's, high. It's one prob- of the higher carbonated beers. Yeah, sure. so more than more than your average, but uh, it's it's very difficult to to figure that out. Uh, and the first time I ever made beer with my father, every beer, every bottle that we bottled exploded in the basement because someone told us to put a raisin in the bottle because we'll get more alcohol. <laughs> driven, by, driven by natural nature, we're going to say, all right, well, we did all this work, so let's throw that raisin in. And every now and then, pop, 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 all gone. And so the amount of CO2 by weight is pretty much equal to the amount of car, uh, alcohol you can make uh, in this type of environment. But we're not talking about weight. With CO2, we're talking about volume. So it's a, it's, it, it actually is a dangerous business <laughs> when you think about it. These things could explode at any time if we're not, if we're not careful. But, so the forced carbonation is very common. Most, most uh, breweries do it, and most people that, that make uh, re-fermented bottle-conditioned beers are only partially doing it in the first place. And a very flat beer that you've fermented at home still has about... 0.75 volumes of CO2 in it, uh, even though it appears to be completely flat. So you, it's, 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 it's highly technical, 
but it doesn't have to be, and I'm sorry for the <laughs> CO2 you know, diatribe over here. But uh, it's very difficult to get this perfect effervescence to deliver the flavor. So the next beer, let's, uh, let's talk about it. What do you got here? So again, the same base beer, and, but we chose to use uh, red wine barrels here. So we're using a blend of Chardonnay, um, Syrah, and Pinot barrels. So fill the wine barrels uh, with the fruit, same process different fruit. I think he uses a blend of two different purees. So it's a sweet cherry puree and a tart cherry to kind of balance it. Um, We played with it originally with just all tart and it was way too tart and all sweet. It was way too sweet. So uh, blend the two different fruit purees together and then age it in the in the wood. And the uh, the original releases we did of this beer uh, were done in white wine barrels, and we were not very happy. We thought the Chardonnay and that kind of oakiness and not picking up a wine characteristic like a red wine was in conflict with the, the uh, cherries. So I hope you like it. Um, the first beer we had did win a silver medal at GABF and the fruit beer. The cherries hasn't won. And I think these two beers, I really love the peach beer because for me it's a little more tart, and I really love fresh peaches the cherry beer for me is for cherry lovers i don't like it as much but for me it's just the fruit a different fruit and i hope you can appreciate each one for its nuances Um, you know how many species of cherries are there there's so many (laughs) species yeah is that a trick question (laughs) so dave (laughs) i've been talking you've been talking about cherries for a little bit and there's a lot of different kinds. But some, some of the more traditional, you know, Belgian brewers, et cetera, will use, you know, pitted cherries and, and, and actually put the beer on the pits as well. And uh, it ends up, you know, adding to uh, a little bit of the nuttier side to, you know, and the, the astringency. But these cherries, uh, the Charbiques, which are the traditional lambic cherries that you'd use, they're half of their mass is just the pit. So, you know, you can almost gauge a fruit by its pit size and go that way and then figure out if you want to have the pits in there. But the, the pits are a dangerous business too because you're going to get tannins out of them, etc. cetera. Um, so, you know, cherries, cherries were the first big-time fruit to be in fruited beer, and then everything else kind of followed it. And um, if, for all you old folks that are as old as me, if you remember uh, a beer called Oregon Raspberry Wheat Ale um, in the you know, early 90s in New York, it was made by Sam Adams, but a wheat beer base and uh, raspberries. And it was, you know, too sweet, but I didn't know. And I drank, I drank it all summer until people started making fun of me for drinking <laughs> fruit beer, you know, at the summer stage in, in Central Park. But, you know, so fruit beers have always been around and, and fermentables have always been mixed. So it's not wine or whiskey or beer or mead or, or uh, braggot. It's everything forever. And we're just getting back to saying, hey, this is Reinheitsgebot stuff. Why, why do you have to have just those things? 
And that's a great part of what's happening in beer because literally it's, it's your oyster. There's so many different things. Just the production process of one of these beers is so different but so good, just like the guys from Firestone or anybody else. So this is a, this is a great time for this kind of stuff. And to be able to use a base beer of one thing and have people and guide people through, hey, we're on this boat. We just happen to be on the Peach Island today. Right. Right? That's going to cue people in on, hey, what to look for, what to not look for. Do you enjoy this one or this one or this one? And that's, it's being a guide. And, and the people from Sam Adams did it, too, with a Latitude series where they had a, a single hop. And McKellar did it. Single hop, different, you know, same base, different ingredient here and there. And that's where people say, oh, I get it. And so you teach with the liquid. You don't have to even say anything. You just say, oh, look, here's this. Here's this. Tastes different. It's beautiful. Um, so the cherries, you know, if, you, it, if a brewer was to make fruit beers today, would he get or he, she, would she get away with not making a cherry beer? <laughs> would you just have to add it to the lineup? Yeah, I think you have to. You have to. I think you have to make a yeah, cherry beer. Cherries Eventually. were the first. Yeah. But um, let's open it up to a couple of questions, yeah, Dave. Sure. So um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stand up, see, assess my BAC by doing that. And uh, uh, any questions right now? Go ahead. Comment first. I'd love to taste the tartar uh, cherry. Oh, yeah? I'd love it a little bit more tart. Okay. But, uh, but you're in Salt Lake City, and as somebody who's kind of tempted to try to uh, open up a brewery as a retirement plan after I retire. I mean, uh, <laughs> how hard did you have to work to get people to open up their minds to, uh, you're in Salt Lake City, how hard did you have to work to tune people to adventurous beer? You know, I think we came, we came with a good story and plan, and actually people thought it was too complicated. So many beer styles and stuff, but, you know, the, if the consumer's there, and they were, and they were thirsty, so it really wasn't hard because there was an unserved market. Let's say oh, they wanted something like this, and I think that you know, and we're really happy and pleased to give it to them. <laughs> I mean, they were pissed when we ran out of beer the first week. <laughs> so basically, retire, retire right now. Yeah, yeah, that's the that's the key. Go ahead. But at the same point, so how do you? To, uh, get bar owners to deal with uh, not being able to have one uh, menu that they print once a year and that there's always a, a, you know, a rotation of beers that you have 25 odd beers through the year that you, you're, you're brewing and you're selling to the same people that it, it's you know you can't just have like oh I have you know, X beer from Epic, and you know that you always have a different beer from Epic sure. every time you come in. Yeah, that's a great question. It's something we struggle with in the marketplace. But I think getting back to I think something ta Sam was touching on is, I think there's more and more this expectation that, as you know, people and consumers that we expect some variety in things, and we want to see the blend. Going back to when fruit accidentally fell in some mash somewhere and they made a fruit beer and they dug it and they could only do that 
certain times of the year, by the way, because a fruit harvest is only a certain time. So I think even bar owners and restaurateurs are moving that way. And I think that's an important part of why craft beer is so successful is we get that as a society, as a, as a in this industry, we get that consumers want those uh, rational experiences through their day, through their year. So I think the bars that don't have some flexibility are learning quickly that they need to do that for their consumer. It, So I think what you're getting at is it, it, it costs money every time you put a different label of beer out, and you know how much it can be. And so this label here versus this label beer, they, they're the same base beer, and you use different fruit, but it still costs the same amount of money for not only the producer right, to push it through. And absolutely, I'm sure that they've been doing this the whole time. Um, as far as as far as the retailer is concerned, whereby you know, well, you know, these guys from Utah keep sending different things all the time, and it's like, oh, I got to change my menu again, and I got to reprint, and all this, and I got to retrain my staff on a new one of these beers. It, it becomes labor intensive, and there's no there's no way around that. There's no way around saying, hey, there's going to be interesting things. And it turns out, in order to bring those interesting things, you're going to need to know what these guys are putting out. And, and yes, so they have the series on the fruit, blah, blah, blah. Okay. But you don't need to have 150 draft lines in order to prove that there are wonderful beers. And you don't even need eight. Eight is, eight is a lot. Because here's the thing. When you go to a bar, how many different beers do you need to try in one night? Eight, nine, 20, whatever it is, it's, it's less than the number of 140. Right? So, so, so five is good. Five is nice. So if someone has 20 draft lines and they change every day or every other day, then you are taking a huge bite out of wonderful things. And prostitution is the, sec the, the, first, the first profession. Motherhood is the second. And we're talking about promiscuity here. And promiscuity and freedom to be promiscuous with beer is what this is all about. Right, Dave? <laughs> this is promiscuity. I'm here. pretty sure that's all illegal in Utah. <laughs> I don't, no. Exactly. Exactly. So, <laughs> promiscuity in Utah is really what this brewery is all about. We just figured it out. Go ahead. Um, I you touched on you touched on it a little bit earlier about uh, you sanitize the uh, the PRA. Have you ever tried to uh, ferment it without sanitizing it first? Well, it's, it's aseptic. Um, no, we haven't uh, done that. I think it's, it's just a really big, unnecessary risk. Yeah. 
I think one of the th one reason, not just that you might get a, wi a wild and nasty beer, but we'd also end up infecting the wood. So there's a substantial investment in the wood, and we use the barrels about three to four times. Um, and then they go later into our sour program where we infect the barrels with, with brettanomyces and, and some other sour agents. We're working on that, yes. So he just asked if... Uh, there was some PDO in there, which is there's basically a few bugs that are very popular and pretty common now that were the bad bugs before, but Lactobacillus, Brettanomyces, and Pediococcus. And they all, they all uh, concert, you know, in fermentation to give you, uh, you know, different things. But um, it, it becomes highly complex and don't ever take the Master Cicerone exam without coming to talk to me first. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> Ray Daniels, if you're listening, I'm going to let the air out of your tires tonight. Um, so that's the, that's the other beer. Let's talk about this next beer. Yeah, Dave. so the last beer is uh, quite different because it doesn't go into any wood. So this is all the raspberry beer. Is oh, next beer, yeah is produced in uh, stainless steel only. So and the way we do that is we, we, we start the, the regular brainless beer, the, the strong ale, and uh, during high croisin, which is the point in which the fermentation is the most active, we actually pump in that, a raspberry puree into the fermenter during active fermentation and then let uh, fermentation continue there. Um, we just wanted to make a beer on steel with raspberries and that Belgian series. Um, it's a, it makes the alcohol per volume a little lower, and because there, I think there's a lot more water content in the raspberries, the ABV isn't quite as high as the barrel-aged beers, and, and it doesn't, obviously it's not an aged beer. So you shouldn't get any of the wood notes, and... Um, you'll, you'll pick up a lot more of the sweetness of the, the base Belgian beer, the phenolics, and um, tartness of the raspberries. Yeah, scale of 1 to 10, this is the, the most sweet. Yeah. And it's... For me. That was a fingerprint. It doesn't it, matter what I think. It also Sorry doesn't have the champagne yeast to dry it out. At, cause, so the residual okay. sugars in the base beer here... Are still there. Are still there because the champagne yeast didn't get a chance. We didn't put okay. champagne yeast on this. So, so this it, is it hasn't been dried out it, exactly by, by the champagne yeast, and and that's something. Boom, you can you can taste right away. There's those residual sugars there that might lend themselves to a goat cheese rather than something a little sweeter on dessert. Yeah, for sure. So, um, what what have been what's been successful for this beer in using in food? or pairing besides dessert yeah this is <laughs> we've, we, we haven't made this beer very long so i'm kind of on the spot there but the obvious is chocolate right i mean that's a no-brainer okay and then we make a beer called big bad baptist and you mix that with this that's a wonderful chocolate so, coffee raspberry okay. beer right so that's a good dessert yeah the chocolate coffee <laughs> raspberry thing you can't go wrong with. um i'm trying to think what i've had I think it'd go okay with maybe some some pork with like currants or something, or some I immediately think of what you can uh, you know when you make a, a strictly arugula salad and it's so bitter 
and then you put some strawberries in it or raspberries and then feta, how the, the sweetness brings everything else out. That's immediate, it's the immediate thing I think is like, hey, let's make a little vinaigrette, throw a little of this in there, put some of those raspberries that you used and just do it in a salad. I think that'd be wonderful. It's gorgeous. I like the first one best. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, our palates don't mean anything. Whatever you guys like the best. Uh, other questions? Any comments? Uh, yeah, hold on. What's your name? Matt. Matt. Where are you from? Philadelphia. Philadelphia. A good beer town. National Homebrew Conference coming up there in two okay, weeks. So, uh, can you talk a bit about how you select the fruit and the wood pairing and... Also, the barrels, like you talked about, uh, you did one on uh, Chardonnay barrels, and it didn't turn out like you wanted it. And you did it on Pinot and Cab barrels, and it turned out better. And also, uh, no whiskey barrels or uh, different types of wood to use in the aging process. Sure. So uh, the example I was talking about was the, the cherries, the brainless on cherries. The first, I think, one or two, I forget how many, a few releases. So... I keep talking about releases. We release number each beer, so you can go to our website and see what we did with the beer. So it's like really transparent towards the end consumer. So if you're really a beer geek, you can get into it, or if you just wanted to learn something about a, a beer. So those first few releases were made for, with the cherries in the Chardonnay, and we didn't really like it very much. We thought that Chardonnay was in conflict with that fruit. So that that's just was our opinion, and, and we stopped making that beer. Ahead of time, you know, we, we had vision to do it in red. At the time, we weren't able to procure red wine barrels that we wanted, but then eventually we did. And you know what's funny is, so I went to a beer event in Idaho about 18 months after that we stopped producing that beer, and this particular beer bar had cellared the brainless on cherries in that white wine barrel. And I tasted it there side by side with a current release in the red. And I actually liked the year and a half old white wine better than the reds over there, right? (laughs) They're heathens. (laughs) They're doing so I mean it's it's perception. It's also what happens to the beer through time. So I what's that? We don't do do they age your beers? uh, Do we age your beers? We don't have a cellaring program yet because of Utah's strange laws. It would be hard to justify cellaring kegs. But once a Denver brewery is done, we anticipate to do that. No, that's fine. We also, we also do use some other wood and for other beers. So, you know, to put these beers in a bourbon barrel, it, just, it would be a disaster to put the peach beer in a bourbon barrel. But we do some imperial stouts. Um, what else? We do, a Bel- we do another Belgian beer with cherry wood smoked malts. And so it's, and it's a lot of caramel malt in the base beer. And we use this wonderful breeze cherry wood smoked malt. And we put it in whiskey barrels. It comes out almost like a scotch and bourbon. So that's another interesting beer to, to taste. And taste a Belgian beer on wood in American oak. You know, that's crazy. I'm going to take the last question for myself. Oh. I know, right. I know. I'm the host and everything. So I'm like, oh, last person's gone. I got him for two more minutes, and I got a question. So, and then I forget it, you know. No, it doesn't matter. Like I'll, I'm going to sit here. And, but, but do you think 
let's say I was to take a brewery such as yours and distill there. Will you put in a distillery or a distilling faction of your brewery in the next five to ten years? Will we? Yeah, will you? Probably not. More than likely not. What, what do you think is happening with distilling as far as, like, you know, um, a lot of small breweries are opening uh, breweries with stills intact in the business plan as far as, hey, I'm going to make a beer and then I'm going to distill it down into liquor and I'm going to sell liquor too. What do you think of that? I think it's a cool trend, but I love beer. And I want to make lots of good beer. All right. And I want to right. not lose focus. But I love the trend. Uh, cool. there's, uh, one of my favorites is Hopkilia. Yes. That is a ridiculous spirit uh, yeah. from New Holland. Yes, yes. So it's an interesting trend. We, yeah. I won't do it. The, <laughs> you know, it's just a question. But uh, no, I'll take a couple more questions because that's ridiculous. <laughs> it's draconian of me. So I'm going to start with you. What's your name? Uh, Mike. Uh, Mike. When do you plan on having your beer available to us here in New York? For you? <laughs> this was not planned. This is planned. It's here. It's when, here. You know, New York has a big population. <laughs> so eventually, <laughs> pretty soon. <laughs> All right, one more. One more. <laughs> yes. Um, you talked about uh, opening the Colorado Brewery. Is that specifically to do aged or uh, cellar beers? No, but there'll be a large cellar component there. And we'll, we're going to make a fun announcement in a few weeks about how that program's going to happen there. Cool. Dave, I think we've gotten to know your brewery and your beer and yourself uh, a little bit better. And, and uh, sheesh, this is the best way to do these things. It really is. Uh, having, you know, being coming from a brewery and being behind the sticks at some larger events, it gets a little hectic and rushed. And I feel like, well, it helps to be the guy with the mic, but uh, I feel like this is a good pace to have sort of a get-to-know-you live experience. So, uh, again, thank you, Brewers Association, and uh, thanks for, like, you know, spreading the word in Utah, you know? <laughs> and uh, we hope to have your beers, but only in the condition under which you uh, prescribe. All right, great. Yes. So... <laughs> Uh, thank you guys. Cheers. Yeah, thank you. Cheers to Dave. Cheers, everybody. Epic. Thanks for coming. Thank you for listening to this recording from Savor 2013, brought to you by the Brewers Association and Craft Beer Radio. You can find the rest of the salons from Savor 2013, as well as all the salons from previous years at craftbeerradio.com slash savor or on craftbeer.com. Craft Beer Radio is a weekly beer podcast that you can listen to on iTunes or from our website at craftbeerradio.com.